but was born in Korea, but I was adopted by a white family when I was a baby. So now as a fully grown Asian person, I don't meet a lot of cultural expectations of what an Asian person should be. You know, like I'm terrible at math. I don't know karate. <laughs> My dick is huge, you know? So it's just sort of like on and on and on and on and on, constantly subverting expectations. Surprising people. I actually don't know how big my dick is because every time I look at it, it's pixelated. Uh, so it is hard to tell. Okay. A few hearty guffaws from the perverts in the audience. That's always nice. Good litmus test. If you didn't get that joke, you're pure of heart, okay? So don't worry about it. Ask a pervert in your own life and they'll explain it. Is great. I feel like most men in this world are obsessed with the size of their penis, but they forget that their penis can also be terribly ugly too, which is really worse in the grand scheme of things, because have you ever seen an ugly dick? The last thing you want it to be is bigger, you know? Like nobody <laughs> is putting a magnifying lens on that thing, it looks like a tree branch caught in a fence, you know? Like how did that happen to that th That thing, that ugly penis over there? Oh, well, it got struck by lightning, fell over sideways and kept growing, you know? Uh, that was comedian, writer, and actor Joel Kim Booster. You may have seen his stand-up on Conan or The Late Late Show with James Corden, among other shows. He's also recently appeared on Hulu's Shrill and features quite prominently in the trailer for an upcoming NBC sitcom called Sunnyside. Joel mentioned several times during our conversation that he does not consider himself famous, but he is one of the better-known gay comics working today a fact that is beginning to complicate his sex life. The thing that I hate the most is when I fuck somebody and then afterwards they like roll over and they're like, by the way, I'm a huge fan. And it's like, oh, somehow I feel lied to. I know that's not technically true, but now this is like 10 times more uncomfortable for me, um, which has happened a couple of times. Yeah, it does. It does. Always, it does put it a little bit of an added pressure, I think, on uh, just casual sexual encounters because like, before I could just like be bad at have one bad sex experience and it'd be fine. But I have made sex a part of my brand. And so if I'm going to have sex, I better be fucking good at it. And like I talk a big game. So there is a little bit more pressure now I think, uh, to perform well in whatever capacity that means. And I also do get a little bit more nervous. I mean, like I'm a big like exhibitionist. I love like a back room. I love uh, an orgy. Like I, w I love an after party that turns into an orgy. And like now I feel a little bit bit more apprehensive about like doing that kind of stuff and I have been the guy uh who you know will turn to somebody and be like are you filming this uh, you know? um because I'm not there yet but I know like I'm I will be famous someday and like that is something that like I don't know but then there is a there's a, there's another part of me that's like this is such an in, in, this has been so integrated into my brand. Like I talk about my dick and balls and ass and cum all the fucking time that it's like, yeah, if my dick ends up, I send so many fucking nudes at this point. Like, uh, who cares? Like, I, I feel like I have built it into my brand to the point where, like, if my dick gets out there on the internet, like, oh well, like it's I've sent it to literally hundreds of people already on the internet of course is going to be seen like and like it'll just be another point of reference for me to use in my have act, you google image searched for it no it might already be there it, it's possible that it, it could be already there but i mean certainly like uh shrill premieres this week and my first scene in that show is my ass and so i'm like i've been thinking a lot about that where i'm like sending out like pics of my ass on grinder and i'm like oh pretty soon like this is this is gonna be like 
Oh, you, you can just Google link. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who? I, they don't need like a personal like uh, photo of it. Because the, the, one, the one on Trill is definitely going to be better. Like, it's definitely going to HD. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to take a better picture of my ass. That's for fucking sure. One issue Joel is passionate about is his belief that we need more diversity in how Asian men are depicted in gay porn. White bodies in porn are seen... Uh, and black bodies to a certain more extent are seen in a variety of different ways. Like you, you have bears and, and twinks and, and muscly guys and, and hairy and uh, smooth. And like all of those different varieties of white bodies are, are constantly sort of on display in gay porn and dick size and bottoms and tops and like all the different aspects of sexuality. But when you go to the Asian tab on like a porn hub, they look pretty homogenous um, in terms of like uh, they're usually skinny they're usually the bottom they're usually like x y or z they look very young Um, and so like for me I do think that especially with how much access uh, even I had as a kid growing up with porn and now kids you know have porn like at their literal fingertips on their phones I, I do think that it can colonize your brain in a certain way and 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 shape your tastes and your ideas of of what is desirable. And I think if you're only seeing one type of of Asian man, then it can form and shape sort of or, or reinforce existing ideas of what an Asian man looks like. Most people, I think, assume that I um, only bottom when I have sex, and I do think that that is racial. I do think that it is the assumption. I think probably. Uh, gotten through uh, porn, the idea. But, and the thing is, is like, I like to bottom. I also like to top. And it's not something you, you look, it looks, it's a, not a great look to get defensive about it. Like if every time I responded to somebody on Twitter who was like, oh, uh, like uh, called me a bottom, it just like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to get defensive about that. Cause I don't want their, I, I don't want the assumption to be that bottoming is bad or humiliating or uh, like, less uh, valuable than topping, but it is frustrating because it's like, well, why, where are you getting that from? Because, and it it makes me think about it a lot when I, especially when I have sex with people who, um, you know, and this is happening, I hate saying this, a little bit more often, but like uh, people who know who I am or are familiar with my work, like I have this like need sometimes where I'm like, fucking them where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be on top. I have to be on top, at least for the first time, just so that it gets out there that this is like something that I do. And and it's like sucks that I have to even be thinking about that. And I wish I weren't thinking about that, but it's like such a part of it. Joel wrote for the first season of the Comedy Central sitcom, The Other Two, which largely focuses on the two adult siblings of a teen boy who suddenly becomes a huge pop star. One of the siblings is a gay man named Carrie, and writing for that character was revelatory for Joel. A lot of it is just like finding out how universal some of these experiences are to a lot of different gay men. Um, there were like four of us in the room, and we would just like talk about, uh, you know, there's a character in the first season, his straight roommate who he occasionally hooks up with, and the sort of universal universality of that experience of hooking up with like some weird straight guy who refuses to come out and is weird and you never address it and you never talk about it is something that I know so many gay men have and I've experienced before and being able to like write about that and see it on television is crazy. Uh, I mean, cause it is such a, sp- to, to hear it be sort of, uh, 
like clarified like, oh yeah, we all have some version of this story was kind of uh, funny and surprising. Part of it might be that sometimes sexuality is more complicated than yeah, absolutely. The, the labels and then some of it is probably closet as well it's probably a mix i think it's a mix of closeted guys and i think there's a uh, there's a i think it's um it, it's not easier i won't say it's easier for heter- uh, heteronormativity is a poison but i think for women a lot of times like by women get that on a t-shirt by women are like, oh no 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 no, they're not they're not really gay. They're just experimenting. They're just experimenting. They'll end up with a guy when a woman comes out as bisexual. And but on the flip side, when a guy comes out as bisexual, I think the implication is like, oh, he's actually gay. He's just like one step one step away from actually being gay. This is uh, this is a ploy. And so like uh, you know, I'm not one to cape for uh, <laughs> bisexuals representation or what have you. Or I, you know, sometimes I think the bisexuals on Twitter can be a little bit loud about their struggle but I do recognize that it is harder I think for their identity to be taken seriously or the fluidity of sexuality to be taken seriously because again the binary is poison you know like they people want you to be one thing and I think that you know it it goes down to like monogamy even you know like we can't get we can't break out of these ideas that are that are so ingrained in us that you you know we've accepted largely as a society that homosexuality is okay in some regard. Um, but we can't accept when somebody doesn't exactly fit in the right box, you know, in a neat box. Um, and so I think like, uh, that was like, that's a, a definitely a big part of when I think about these guys, like I, I wish that like they are probably closer to bisexual than they probably want to admit. And like, it's fine if they like marry a girl, like do that. But like to be so like, it's so strange to me, like how uh, locked up they are about like just being horny and like wanting to like hook up with a guy. It's like, fine. Uh, It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have to mean anything. You know, I've hooked up with girls and it's meant less than nothing, you know, like I'm sure they'd love to hear that. (laughs) No, I mean, this is like post coming out and it's like sometimes you're fucked up and you're horny and you're fingering your friend on the dance floor for shits. And it's like, we're both having fun. It doesn't have to mean that I'm bi or that I, you know, it is just like sex. We're animals is my belief. And I I think we lay so much on top of those desires and that's what complicates it. But at the end of the day, like you just want to finger your friend Cammy, you know, (laughs) like... Do you, I mean, do you consider yourself fully gay, whatever that I means? I think or? I'm pretty, like, if we're going by the Kinsey scale, like, I'm I'm like a five and a half for sure. Um, I don't have, like, a huge interest in having sex with a woman. Because a six wouldn't finger Cammy. That's no, your, exactly. That's yeah, belief. that's where that sort of, the liminal space between five and a half and six. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I wouldn't be... I guess like the five and a half, like, cause gender is complicated now. Like I have hooked up with trans men and like, I guess I'm like, Oh, I guess I don't like the penis. Isn't like the thing that defines my sexual like uh, attraction level. And so I guess like that makes it a little queer, less like fully gay or does it make me gay? I don't know. It's all very complicated, but uh, yeah, I, I guess like there have been moments in my life where I'm like, yeah, I could fuck this woman. Uh, but I'm usually like pretty fucked up and pretty like horned up. There is a sensuality in everybody that is appealing. Um, and it's so lame to like be like, well, the last time I want to be in a vagina is when I was coming out. And it's like, 
grow up. <laughs> like it's twenty nineteen. No um I, I no, I'm definitely a gold star. My P has never been in a V, only my finger. Um so yeah, I guess. But but yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm open to it. I'm open to it if if the situation is right and it comes to me, I'm not gonna like reject that experience by any means, but I'm not ser- seeking it out. Welcome to episode 44 of Sex with Strangers, Sex with Comedians. As always, I'm your host, Chris Soa. We will hear much more from Joel and five other stand-up comics, including recent AVN winner, Aton Levine. The AVNs are generally thought of as the porn Oscars, and Aton came up with the name for this year's clever title winner, a Hamilton porn parody called Hamilton. We will also hear again from Berlin-based pro-dom Lady Velvet Steel about her experience shooting a television segment in her dungeon with comedian Conan O'Brien. And the final non-comedian we will hear from is award-winning playwright and founder of Smut Slam, Cameron Moore. There's a lot of great stuff in this episode, so please stick around. Hey everyone, a couple quick things before we get back into the topic at hand. As of this moment, as I'm saying these words into a microphone, we are just a couple of days away from starting Sex with Strangers' first collaborative research project. More than 30 of you have already volunteered to take part in it, which is amazing. And of course, more are welcome. And if you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, check out the announcement about this project in your podcast feed or at sexwithstrangershow.com. It should be there. The one other thing I wanted to mention is something you already know. Reproductive rights are under attack here in the United States, and I think that's a very, very bad thing to put it mildly. So we're going to try to do something to raise a little bit of money for the Planned Parenthood Action Fund here at Sex with Strangers. Every time someone reviews the podcast on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, we will donate $2 to the Planned Parenthood Action Network, which is on the front lines of this fight. If you've already reviewed the show, feel free to get your spouse or cousin or next door neighbor to do the same. The donation will be applied to all reviews, even terrible ones, but I would like to encourage you to give five-star reviews for obvious reasons. Okay, let's get back into the show. Joel was just talking about how the sexual labels we assign ourselves don't always tell the full story. And this is definitely the case with my next guest, comedian Iman El Husseini, who currently identifies as a lesbian. I said I was bisexual for the longest time when I started coming out because I'm like, I am attracted to men. Um, But I feel like when you're lesbian married, you just have to say you're a lesbian, right? I feel like that's easier. I mean, I don't mind, but we definitely like my wife, both my wife and I feel like we're attracted to men as well. But it's not something that we talk about as much just because we're married. And, you know, Aman is also a Muslim identifying as a gay Muslim, I imagine you get a lot of questions. Sure. Um, Well, people are just like, how could you, religious Muslims will be like, how could you say that you're Muslim if you're gay? That makes no sense. And uh, other people have, you know, asked me why I haven't renounced the religion. Um, I mean, I feel like you could be whatever the fuck you want to be. Like, why does anybody have an authority to tell you what 
what, how to identify. I'm a Muslim lesbian and I love being, you know, I'm like a really proud person too. I don't know if it's because of my horoscope sign. I'm just like, I love everything that I am. You know, I love that I'm a Leo. I love that I'm Muslim, Palestinian, gay, left-handed, you know, all of that stuff. So I definitely identify as, I mean, because I feel like every aspect is, uh, contributes to my personality and who I am. You know, I'm affected by all of these things. Like I grew up uh, with a Muslim mindset, you know, I grew, I, I was born and raised in the Middle East. Um, all I knew, Palestine, right? uh, actually, no, I'm Palestinian originally, but born in Kuwait. Okay. And then moved to Canada so, during the first Gulf a, a War. A little bit bougier. Yeah, a little bit bougier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is actually, it's so sad because my parents, literally saw wealth and poverty twice in their lifetime, which is so traumatizing. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. She's no longer religious, but there was a time when she was quite observant. I prayed five times a day at a, a certain point. I fasted the month of Ramadan. I didn't eat pork. I didn't swear. Uh, I didn't drink alcohol. And it was at 21. Um, I just like, I lost my virginity to my hot neighbor. I started drinking alcohol. I tried bacon and I never looked back. <laughs> Her complicated relationship with Islam was on full display during our conversation in a number of ways, including through her choice of clothing for that day. What is the story with this shirt? So uh, my friend who's from Virginia uh, went to this, obviously, I think it was like a, a gun store or something or one of those things Southern people have. And he found this shirt that says infidel which a lot of right-wing guys who hate Muslims like to wear. And then he's like, if I thought that would be funny for you. So yeah, it was perfect. I actually wore this uh, t-shirt in Mexico and my mother was like, go change right away. <laughs> she really did not like that. I, Although kafir, which is how you say infidel in Arabic, was my nickname growing up. So she's culturally Muslim rather than religiously Muslim. Which might sound odd for some of you, but there are quite a few people of varying sexual orientations and identities who approach Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, and so on in the same exact way. Dan Savage's connection to the Catholic Church is just one example that comes to mind. I'm actually working on a podcast myself that I used to have in Canada called Unheard of Sex, Religion, and Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm also fascinated by sexuality and religion and all of that stuff. So when I was in Montreal, I like recorded with people who were like, let's say asexual or a former Jehovah's Witness or a burlesque dancer or whatever. Um, and I took like a sex seminar actually one weekend. It was the best. We talked to like everybody, like a porn star, um, a porn couple actually that were married where the husband as soon as he got married, was never able to get hard unless he was having sex with his wife, as opposed to her, who was married to him and had like two girlfriends and another boyfriend on the side. It was so crazy. She so was did able they just have to start shooting porn together? Was that the only way he could have for a For him. For him, that's it. It was over. As soon as she put a ring on it, it was like done for him. He could I not like get turned on. every man's nightmare. Yeah, right? Because you would think like, she's like, no, be open. Go out there. And he's like, I can't get hard for anybody but you. She's kind of romantic, I guess, but yeah. she, it wasn't mutual, which like sucks. suicide. <laughs> I know, seriously. Well, like that porn star, I'll look him up after we're done with here, that, that I really love. He got married to a porn star too, and then she wasn't allowed to shoot porn anymore, but he continued to do porn. Anyway, everybody Sometimes has their thing. Happens. Yeah. Um, we talked to like somebody who has AIDS. We talked to, it was so great. It was like 
on a weekend. It started at 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd watch porn, like, first thing in the morning, having our tea and cookies. It was the best. Anyway. Um, Not enough people drink tea when they're watching porn, <laughs> right? I think. I know. You're, like, just in a room full of strangers, and we're all, like, just watching this hardcore porn and pretending not to be, like, turned on, I guess. I don't know. I've... The the only experience, well, I guess I've had a couple experiences like that. I used to host a comedy show. I'm um, actually with Jeff, who was here. Yeah, that was in a porn theater, and sometimes like things would play. Yeah. Um, but that that was a really strange place. One time, I um leaned against the wall, and my like shirt stuck to the wall. No. And. <laughs> I mean, it was, I'm a tall person. Yeah. So it's just like, if that's what that was, that was like quite wow, remarkable. Seriously. But, um, I definitely like washed that shirt a couple times before I wore it again. Oh my God. Who told me recently about the first time that they got a hand job and came for the first time ever? And it was like later in life because they had some guilt. Somebody I interviewed on the podcast because that's what we're talking about. So my podcast is coming out hopefully soon. I have to like sit down and edit it, but it's called Unheard of sex, religion, and politics at the dinner table. Um, but anyway, this guy, I don't know if they had had a lot of guilt because they were either like raised in an Orthodox Jewish home where you didn't talk about sex or were Catholic or something. But apparently they got their first hand job and it literally like shot up to the ceiling. It was like so <laughs> intense. Anyway. Um, well, maybe... Maybe they were at that theater. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened. <laughs> and I'm part sure. of their story. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't feel like I've ever experienced anything quite that intense. Yeah. Now, I'm, now I feel kind of jealous. But right? I want to splooge on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in to the podcast. I, don't, I can't remember which episode it was, but you'll, you'll hear that sort of thing. I like watching porn once in a while. I know. I feel like women don't talk about it as often. Like, guy comics will come up here and give you their mas masturbation schedule. <laughs> but female comics, we don't do that that often. But I do, and I feel it's because, like, we don't know good porn like guys do. Like, I don't know actors and directors and stuff like that. <laughs> so I come across a lot of shitty porn, and I saw this porn recently. It was a threesome, a girl with two guys. They're going at it. The girl is telling them what to do. She came before they did. Very unrealistic, right? <laughs> Walt Disney porn, that's what it was. Walt Disney porn. So this turns me off from porn for like two days or whatever. <laughs> and then I see this, I see this porn, straight porn, guy, girl, both hot, very attractive. The guy was unbelievable. They're going at it. The girl does not look like she's enjoying herself at all. Mascara's running down her face. I'm pretty sure she was crying. So far, so good, right? But now I'm still a woman, I'm multitasking, I have a lot of things to do, so I fast forward, because I'm dying to know what happens in the end. <laughs> and now the guy's about to finish, the girl is on her knees, but she backs away from his penis. Element of surprise. She's supposed to take him in the face. Okay, um, the guy, the guy, you guys, finishes on the floor, the girl gets on all fours like a kitty cat. <laughs> Next to come off the floor. I never came so hard before in my life, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not gonna lie to you. Iman started her stand-up career in Montreal about 12 years ago. 
A few years in, she shot a comedy special for Canadian TV, which you can watch on YouTube. We'll also link to it in the show notes. The first thing that surprised me watching it was it really looks like it was shot a couple decades earlier than it actually was. It was recorded in 2012. Oh, wow. I... And it looks like the early 90s. Yeah. It's just that club. That's <laughs> yeah. what it is. It's that, but that room is actually beautiful. I don't know what happened with like the coloring. I mean, it just looks so awful. Maybe it's just like the quality of it on YouTube. I no, I think it was like that on it TV. It was like too? that on TV too. Okay. Yeah. So maybe that's just not a very photogenic room. It's just like an ugly set, totally. Yeah. But the main thing that surprised me watching it is that Amon presents herself as a straight woman throughout that special. I did not feel that I was gay then. I really um and I had a lot of gay friends. I hung out at gay bars. I did all of that stuff. I was a party girl, you know. Until I met my wife, like in, actually, I had met my wife at that point because her and I started dating 2011. We kept breaking up until we got together 2012. Okay, so that's what happened. I did not, my material was so straight up until I met her. And then that's why I thought she was like a spy sent from Israel to like sabotage my career because I started getting all of these like things um, in comedy, like that comedy special I got into just for laughs for the first time. I, you know, a bunch of things. And all of a sudden I'm like lured in by this like gorgeous redhead, you know, Um, and I was like severely closeted when we first started started dating. I kept like breaking up with her too, because I'm like, I couldn't come to terms that this is the first woman I hook up with. This is the first person I fall in love with. And like, I you know, what am I supposed to do? So um, I was closeted when I was recording that. It was like early on in our uh, relationship. And yeah, like the transition from going from a straight comedian to like openly gay was definitely a hard thing for me to do until I got to New York. Then it was like, woo! <laughs> do you do a different kind of set when you have a mostly gay audience versus, you know, you're just at a bar in Brooklyn? You know what? No. I really do what I'm excited about the most. And I do feel like most bar shows in Brooklyn are pretty gay. So I just feel like everybody's queer nowadays. Like I know this guy who's married to a woman and he considers himself queer because I guess she's bisexual. I don't know. I feel like everybody in Brooklyn is queer. So there's no, my, my sets are always the same. They might vary a little bit, um, from comedy club to Brooklyn rooms or gay rooms, just because I feel like with tourists, you know, you have to be like a little more gentle with, with that stuff because you don't want to scare them off right away. So it's like win them over with relatable stuff. Like I've been trying to lose weight since 1993, you know, and then like hit them with the gay stuff and the Arab stuff and the Muslim stuff. It's a lot of hitting you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Talking about race, religion, politics or sex on stage can definitely cause some audiences to tense up sometimes in ways that can add to a performance, but it can also completely derail one. Of the six comics featured in this episode, Joel Kim Booster is probably the one who spends the most time talking about sex on stage. I've definitely been at clubs where I can feel people sort of clench up and it, and it's been, and I'm used to it enough at this point now that I, I can sort of finesse my way out of that and sort of address it and like sort of um, 
help the audience sort of relax into the fact that this is just like, this is one of the most universal experiences that we have as human beings. So it shouldn't be that hard to uh, sort of laugh at and and sort of uh, relate to. Because that's, I mean, that's the thing that like they tell you as a gay comedian or a comedian of color or any, any non, you know, straight white comedian, whatever, uh, is that like, oh, like you're too niche you're too like you, the the if you want to do if you want to play clubs if you want to have a bigger audience it has to be your material has to be very broad to sort of appeal to as many uh people in the audience as possible and i think like i don't know like I, everybody has sex so i i always think like and never go into it thinking that this is some niche topic that I'm I'm jumping into. It's like the same. Uh, I don't know. It just feels strange to me when I do eventually get pushback on it. But one thing I've heard from a couple lesbian identified um, comics is that they've gotten some pushback from clubs specifically, telling them to maybe tone it down a little bit. Do you get that at all? Have you? I. No, I have actually, I've never gotten that yet. I think partially because I don't know if it's because at this point, especially, I think everybody is sort of aware uh, it is a big part of my brand. I think like, uh, so that is like a, a help. And I think also I, I always ask first, the first night I always say like, uh, is there anything off limits? And I think like a lot of club owners like to have this sort of like, I'm uh, anti-PC bravado about like, no, man, say whatever you want, go wherever you want, do whatever you want. And I'm like, great. And then I do. And I think they think it's like, yeah, make fun of fat people or something like that. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to I'm going to talk about like eating out, you know, like and, and I and it definitely like I've had walkouts. I've had so many walkouts in my uh, career. Um, not usually the whole audience. Luckily, most of the time it's gone Is well. It, it's ever been the whole audience? Never, That's, never the whole that audience. That would actually but. be pretty impressive. I think I'd be... Got, like an entire club to leave. Yeah, I think, and weirdly... Uh, I would be somehow like 10 times more famous if I was a comic right. who was regularly walking full clubs of people. Uh, but no, there's usually, there's always like a fan. Oh my God. I did a show here in LA recently and I did like a whole set about like the experience of having blackout sex. <laughs> and I just, I, I look up and I saw this man taking his like, it, he couldn't have been more than like nine year old son out of the audience. And it was like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, so that experience, I think, happens i think with the ubiquity of comedy right now like every movie every television show you know no matter what it's about has to have some sort of element of comedy and comedy is like so within the zeitgeist right now and i think so people sort of assume that comedy is safe like oh i had a woman uh in san diego who i was i have this whole run of bits about uh uh, making women come and she was sitting in the front row with her like again like nine to ten year old son and it was a conan branded show like he he had produced it and so and he was there and i think like that maybe it like lulled them into like oh comedy is goofy and like absurdist and stuff like that and here i am talking about uh you know a hypothetical situation if someone put a gun to my head how i would make a woman come and like she's there sitting next to her son and they definitely left in the middle of it but i always have fun with those moments too I I mean, it's it's definitely like a part of it for and, sure. And what is your approach for for making a woman come with a gun to your head? <laughs> I think the I I have never I haven't spent a lot of time down there. I'm just convinced that I could do it. Like I think like it's a pushback against this idea that it's hard because I just don't believe it could be. Um, so 
uh, yeah, I'm can I like get me in there, like put, throw me in. I, mean, I will make it happen. Um, I really want to try. I really, really do. You're already on Tinder, right? You yeah, just, just, <laughs> just swipe a, a few buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm sure you can make it happen. Yeah, um, I'm sure if anyone's listening out there, yeah, hit me know, up. Slide I, into the DMs. <laughs> One of the lesbian-identified comedians who mentioned negative feelings about comedy club owners and managers in New York City, I alluded to in that last clip, is Elsa Waith, who began her comedy career in Virginia before moving to New York. What I realized, especially after I moved here to New York, was that I was very often in Virginia the only black comic, the only queer comic, or the only woman comic on the entire show. And then I found that that was also the same here in New York. And I was just like, why is that happening? You know, like this is like the melting pot or whatever. So I started even integrating it into my act that this might be the only time you, you know, you hear authentically from a black queer woman all week, even though you live in New York City. When I first got here, the whole thing was like, get in with the club, get in with the club, get picked up by a club, be on the club's roster or whatever. And I tried out for a club and the guy called me back and he he sucked my dick and told me how good I was for, you know, how many years I'd already been doing comedy. Like, wow, you're way ahead of your years. And then it was like, maybe not so many gay jokes. Maybe not so many black jokes. I'm like, oh, so don't talk about myself is what you're saying, you know? So I, uh, I didn't go back. He was like, come back in a month or two and re-audition. Never did. Because you liked me, but you didn't like me. So here in New York, you have more opportunities to make your own opportunities. I started my own show called Affirmative Laughter for that very reason. Um, I flipped the script. So instead of being the only black person or the only uh, uh, woman or the only queer person on the show, we'll have a whole lineup of black people, just one white guy. We'll have a whole lineup of gay people and just one straight person, you know? Just to just to show people like, isn't this weird? Isn't that isn't that really kind of weird? It makes that one person stand out really weird, right? So um I when people say, you know, no, no less gay jokes or whatever, you're asking me to tone me down. You know? And if you listen to my comedy, it's I purposely diversify my topics, you know? Um I had somebody tell me that, like, oh, well, this is when my hair was shorter. The guy was like, oh, I didn't know you were a dyke. I thought you were a guy. He's like, but thanks for not being so preachy, preachy with the gay stuff. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that means. That's that is the weirdest compliment ever. Uh, I also will not be coming back to this club. Like, <laughs> I've been so that I've, was like that was not an audience member. That was like that was the, like the club owner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've been I've been passed at three of the city's you know biggest clubs, but they've all ruined it by saying something weird. And I just, it's not that serious for me. You know, I actually would much rather make my own opportunities and not censor myself. So you're you're actually rejecting them because of how they've accepted you. Yeah, it still feels like a token sort of thing. You know, like we got to get a queer on the roster. You know. Um, but also don't be so queer. So, uh, no thanks. Elsa resisted addressing her queerness on stage when she first started. But then I got advice from uh, a comedian that I had really respected at the time. And he was like, 
you have to get naked on stage. You have to expose these parts of yourself. He's like, I'm a really big fat guy. Right. He's like, it's very obvious that I'm a big fat guy. If I get on stage and I spend 15 minutes and I never mention that I'm a big fat guy, everyone's going to be like, why did that fat guy not tell fat jokes? You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's such a big glaring thing. So he's like, um, also, my hair was a lot shorter at the time, too. I had like a little box fade or whatever. And um, so I looked much more masculine at the time or whatever and he was like you get on stage and you look like a young boy and you never you know address it you never talk about it he was like people are people are wondering he's like you you got to talk about it so do you remember the first time you brought it up yeah i would say maybe about it was maybe about three months in and i realized i didn't have any gay jokes um and i i wanted just to talk about what people don't think is difficult for me and the bathroom, you know, like the, the bathroom, it was always a, a challenge for me, the public bathroom. And, um, so I would just sort of talk about the weird things that people would say to me in the bathroom or like how, how like a woman like tried to like block me off from the bathroom or whatever. Or how like one time I just grabbed a man's hand and just like put it on my tit and just like move. Like, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, maybe about three or four months into doing comedy, uh, that's kind of how I broke into it. We're like, still, we're not going to talk about sex or, or or having sex or anything, but these are the things that frustrate me. And, and, and maybe you, you straighties, you know, you normies don't understand why this is frustrating. So that, that was maybe my first foray into uh, sex and sexual stuff was frustrations you know or, or dating frustrations or even people who don't understand like the the dynamics even within the the queer community you know i have a whole bit about how my um feminine girlfriend ex-girlfriend always wanted me to fight you know like stick up for her honor or whatever and i'm like look we're just both gonna get beat up you know like i'm gonna get beat up and your ass is still gonna be grabbed so stop doing this to me. So, so I had a lot of jokes about just the stereotypes that people inside and outside the community have about us. Going back to, to the bathroom, you, you said that you've had experiences. Yeah. I got a $100 gift card out of Walmart one time because the security guard followed me into the bathroom and stood out front the door waiting for me to come out. Or whatever, and so when when I came out the bathroom, I just blew right past him and went to customer service, and I was like, "Hey, is there a reason why your male security guard is following me into the bathroom?" And and I just I made I didn't even make a big stink about it. I just made like a mild stink about it, just like you know, maybe we don't want this leaving this Walmart tonight. You know, <laughs> I have a very heavy online presence, and maybe if you don't want me to tweet about this, we just let me get my groceries for free tonight. You know, so. Uh, yeah, uh, people are super crazy weird about the goddamn bathroom. I mean, like, if you're bothering other people in the bathroom, you're not pissing right, you know? Just, you're not in the bathroom properly. So, if you're, I've never been to the bathroom and seen anybody else's genitalia or seen anybody's tits or anything like that. So, if you're in the bathroom and you're looking at, like, privates, you're doing bathroom wrong. <laughs> or, like, really right. Or really right! <laughs> Consensually. Consensually, maybe at a maybe at a gay bar or something. I have I have uh done things in the stone wall 
bathrooms. Shh. <laughs> no the, one's listening. The upstairs bathrooms. Now that her hair's a little longer, public bathrooms have become less of a problem for Elsa, but new issues have arisen. Now I get cat calls, and I get a very specific cat call. I get a very like special cat call where like men are like, yeah, I know you like women, but you haven't tried me. I'm like, sir, you are also standing on the corner. Like, if I was going to try a dick, it wouldn't be yours. Like, we got to we gotta upgrade, you know? Like, if I'm going to go there, I need you need to pull up in a car with, like, lots of bling or something. Like, <laughs> okay. If- yeah, but I get a very specific cat call of men trying to, like, turn me back. Like, they've got the magic dick or something. What a lot of men don't understand is, like, I don't have a problem with dick. I have a problem with men, you know? Like, you got... You got too much hair, there's ball funk, you know, there's, you're big, you know, a lot of guys don't moisturize their hands, I don't want that touching me, you know, a lot of guys don't moisturize their lips properly, I don't want that touching me, uh, beards, not into beards, you know, it's not, the dick I imagine is, it's very scratchy. I don't know, I don't know, I haven't kissed enough men to know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't like it. The times I have, I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I like men as a concept. <laughs> I, like, I like men in a theoretical sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a misconception. I, I like dick just fine. Uh, it's, it's what's usually attached to it I'm not so fond of. But uh, definitely, not, definitely not trying any street dick. Not trying any cat call street dick. So so when did the cat calls start? Just like when you, your hair got longer? Yeah, once it started, once it got like past my ears, once it, once it got past my ears or whatever, it, it was like games on. And it's so weird because I'm like, sir, we, me and you are wearing the same outfit, you know? <laughs> In addition to attracting random street dick, as Elsa put it, her relative androgyny has also gotten her some female attention. When I was in... High school, like my first like job or whatever, I worked late nights at, at Dairy Queen and this girl would come in every night and order extra Oreos on her blizzard and like never finish the blizzard. And I'm like, oh, she's coming to see me. Right. And so like I invited her back to my house um, when my mom wasn't home one night and we got to make it out and she touched my chest. And she was like, what? what's that? What is that? Right. And like. <laughs> So I'm like, you didn't realize I was a, a a girl or whatever. And she gets up and goes to the bathroom. I'm like, well, you know, I guess the date's over or whatever. And then she comes back out the bathroom. She's like, okay. And I'm like, oh, oh. So that joke to me is all is like, you know, most women are slightly gay. They just haven't been presented with the opportunity yet. <laughs> so she had to go in the bathroom and I don't know, like get her life right with God or something. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing in the bathroom, but like, this is a whole story about, like, you know, just how she, in my heart of hearts, I think she knew. And that was just, like, her way of, like, oh, surprise. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm already here, I guess, you know. Elsa and I spent a huge chunk of our conversation discussing how perceptions of masculinity and femininity permeate the culture and have a huge impact on how the world sees and treats us as human beings. 
I did have a girlfriend for a little while. She had another partner who was, uh, they were both very feminine and they didn't like to hold hands in public because people would catcall them. So she was very taken aback by the fact that I liked to hold hands with her. Um, and she didn't have m- much of a problem holding hands with me because uh, I was more masculine. So people would leave us alone a little more. So, uh, but but yeah, I can I can see how I have masculine privilege in that way. Like I don't have, you know, male privilege, but I do have masculine privilege. Like I notice like if we go out, the waiter or the waitress will hand me the check, even if I'm not paying. People will talk to me before they talk to my girlfriend or something like that. So I, I do notice a bit of masculine privilege. And it seems like that masculine privilege cuts both ways because it's like it's helpful in some ways, but also like when it comes to using the bathroom and that right, kind of thing, yeah, it, like or you get the other side of it, or or people get aggressive with me because they think I'm a man and they want to, you know, they like oh I disrespected them, so now we have to fight. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like ah, I don't want to, no, I don't want to fight. Like stop, you're being weird. Like. <laughs> People will like cuff their girlfriend a little harder or whatever if they see me, you know, like if, if me and a girl made eye contact or whatever, it was like my girlfriend, this is my girlfriend. I'm like, bro, relax, you know, or or this other thing that other masculine women will do. And they're like, we got to like out guy each other, you know, and then like, I'm, you know, I'm sitting wide. So she's got to sit wider, you know, like <laughs> my voice is deeper, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't play those games. But yeah, there's a there's a there's a weird gendered dichotomy that I just don't fuck with. <laughs> it's peacocking, basically. It, definitely. And I mean, this I've been single for about 7 months now and it's also given me an opportunity to like explore what I like. Like if you would have asked me a while ago, I would have, you know, I would have told you I'm not really attracted to other masculine women, but I am finding that I am. And I've been with a couple of non-binary folk or trans-masculine folk, and uh, I'm broadening my horizons. Like, you know, um, I would have, I probably wouldn't have done that in the past because I was myself seeped in a lot of gender role stuff or stereotype stuff and like I said a lot of my comedy is like pointing that out or whatever and some like I felt hypocritical after a while of saying that I don't date other masculine people or I don't sleep with other masculine people and I realized I was even within my my gay queer self still carrying around a lot of heteronormative bullshit so it's 2019 let that shit go like this is what a woman is and yeah this this is is, or 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 there's there's masculine masculinity and and femininity and masculinity should be attracted to femininity and vice versa or whatever and i like i'd say shit like i don't understand stud on stud relationships you know like but i could understand femme on femme relationships you know like that's that's very uh it's very patriarchy of me, you know? It's very heteronormative of me. So we're all unlearning, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I do find that this idea of being attracted to a certain kind of energy mm-hmm. really interesting. Like, I definitely know straight-identified men who feel like they're mostly just attracted to femininity and can sort of find it in unexpected places. Right, yeah. And then I think... 
there are women who maybe think of themselves as mostly straight who like the woman at the Dairy Queen mm-hmm. um, might find boobs under that hoodie and be like, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I, what I say, what, what attracted me to, to this particular one person was how good the, the switch was, you know, like they're very beautiful woman and a very handsome man. You know, we went on a, we went on the date and they were like, this might be one of my last times um, wearing feminine clothes. So I want to go out on a date with somebody very masculine and I'm going to be very feminine and we're going to go to a ballet. And we had a great time at the ballet and we get back to their apartment and we're, we're doing it. And like, as the encounter is going on, the makeup is starting to come off and smear or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, there's the, there's the boy. Right. It's like, God damn, you're actually still very damn handsome, you know? And we went on another date and another, the, the other, you know, the next date we went on was very masculine and I'm like shit I am smitten you know like you are very handsome so it was like a like a, just a very uh beautiful mix it's very yin and yang or whatever and I found myself thinking and saying some of the things that people had said about me that I'm like a like a like a boy with a girl body or you know and like that's how this like very masculine and handsome in the face but throw on some makeup and it's very beautiful woman and body was all there and just the attitude you know there was a very like strong masculine attitude but like some softness I don't know I was all about it so and now that I've been like exposed or appreciate now that I've been able to appreciate that I see it so much more now and people who are like yeah 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 you're beautiful and all but it's like no 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 I see the yin and yang in you and I see the the both sides and wow that's really pretty uh, really pretty really beautiful so I've gotten a, a greater appreciation and I think that's um I think we have a lot of work even inside of the community to do you know being as woke as I am, I still have a lot to learn. Stand-up comedy is a male-dominated field, and Elsa is focused on getting more females involved with the craft. I teach teen girls stand-up comedy uh, through Gold Comedy School for Girls. If we're looking for more diverse viewpoints and more diverse perspectives in comedy, um, it starts with the kids. So, like you know, we like to say that we're building a, a a women's farm team and that eventually these girls will flood comedy. It's a $20 online class available through goldcomedy.com and you can find a link to it in the show notes among the many, many links for projects connected to the folks featured in this episode, including the aforementioned Hamilton porn parody, Hamilton, which recently won two AVN awards and is available in its entirety for free on Pornhub. Hamilton, like other cinematic masterpieces, was a collaboration between a number of creative people, but the person who came up with the idea for the film is my next guest, Aton Levine. Before Hamilton, Aton had no connection to the porn industry whatsoever, so his journey to becoming an AVN winner 
was a somewhat random one that began when he was working for the website Elite Daily, pitching ideas for original videos. Uh, the idea that kind of like takes off or that we end up going with is this like three-part mini-doc series where we, I do three weird jobs. So the first job was that I embedded in the paparazzi for a week, um, which was terrifying. I, I, uh, it was a week of like grown men looking at me and being like, like Gigi Hadid's at Panera, let's roll. Like it was, it was like so weird. We hopped a curb uh, and almost killed a kid trying to get a picture of uh, Cara Delevingne. <laughs> we were like in a high speed chase like through LA with Cara Delevingne's car. After that, he briefly joined Ringling Brothers Circus. The funny part about the circus was that everyone in the circus is hot. They're all like stunning, beautiful people. Literally, it was like dudes without shirts wrestling and then like women on like flinging around, you know, just in their like workout gear. Uh, it was like the Olympic Village. It really felt like the Olympic Village. I'm just like, everyone's got to be fucking here like that. There's no way that they're not. So I started asking the clowns. I was like, Are you guys all what's going on here? And the clowns were like, we're not allowed to stay. It's a family organization. Cut to the video comes out a couple weeks later. The from uh from Early Brothers emails me and goes like, "Oh, we like this video." And I was like, "Oh, thanks." I got a question though. Like, I'm not doing any more articles on you. Are you guys all like fucking like what's happening here? And she emails me back and she goes, "Listen, we're a family organization. I can't say anything, but we fucking so that's what's happened at the circus. Uh, the circus is fucking. <laughs> Whenever you walk into the circus, you know there's that smell, and you're like, oh, I guess that's the animals. Not true." That's it's that's the sex. Like, that, is that what your sex smells like? I mm -hmm. hope not. My sex smells like zebra poops. Uh, exactly like zebra poops. And I'm single, ladies. Uh, His third idea was to write for porn. It took some wrangling, but Aton eventually got the people at Wood Rocket to hear some pitches for porn parodies. Wood Rocket is a big name in the porn parody world. Over the years, they've brought us many classics, including. The Full House porn parody, Full Holes, featuring friend of the show Chanel Preston as Kimmy Gobbler. They also made Mighty Muffin Pounder Rangers, Sailor Poon, and of course, more recently, Hamiltoe. Hamiltoe is the first thing we end up pitching. They instantly love it. Uh, the quote was that this was the funniest uh, uh, pun title that they had ever heard. It's like you won the AVN before you won the AVN. It, it honestly, it was, I, I don't want to say I cried when he said that, but like, it was an emotional moment where I was like the best, like this. Oh, thank you so much. That's like, it, I don't know. It's weird. Cause it's like it, this concept and this, like doing this stuff is like clearly rooted in porn, but so much of it has been like wins not related to the porn part of right, it. And Just to be like, fair, Hamilton, it seems to mostly be singing. It, uh, it's like, I think it's like, I think it's like 15 or 15, to, maybe half and half. Yeah. It's about half um, and half. Cause there's just like one. I watched it. Um, there's just one sex scene. Can I ask a question? Did, Can I ask a question? I did skip through a bit. Did you come? No, I mean, that was okay. not the purpose of watching it. I hear that. I hear that. I'm I curious. was there for the music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got it. I playboy for the articles. Hamilton for the music. Yeah. No, like. The I asked people because zipped yeah. up the entire the entire time, but that was that was not the yeah. purpose, you know. It was just like I I as I said I like skipped through the sex for yeah. the most part. Um, Understandable, but I listened to every word of the songs. Yeah, I actually so so when I wrote it, what's interesting is that um, I wrote the first draft. I came up with the name and some of the story. I'd say about fifteen percent of ish 
if that um, made it into the final. Um, the rest of it was written by Dave DeKegley, who and uh, Wood Rockets people. I think my issue was the first script I sent them was like so based on like po- like puns in Hamilton. The way that porn parody law kind of works is that you can't have something be like Hamilton couldn't be Hamilton, and then like midway through the dialogue they they have sex. Like it needed to be a commentary on Hamilton. Like it's like kind of like the the way that that works. How long is your original script for it? I think it was about 10 pages of rap. Um, seven, about, I'd say like midway through the sixth page or seventh page, there's just parentheses and it says BGA, boy, girl, anal. <laughs> and that's where they do the sex, which is something I didn't, it was funny. It was funny finding that out. You know, it was like, it literally is just a full script middle, like in the most innocuous like way possible. Just says BG BGA. anal. BGA. Um, which is my pen name. Uh-huh. Um, and my high school wrestling name. <laughs> so of the lyrics that actually appear in there, yeah. can, can you think of some that you actually wrote? Because yeah. you said that most of it was changed, right? Yeah, most of it was changed. I Like from the, the opening chorus, like Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million loads I haven't blown. But here I come, here I come. That was me. The original, I remember that the opening, this is what I remember from the opening. What about the queen? I enjoyed her, like, that's too many tits for too many dicks or whatever. I enjoyed that. That Her name is Clara Biznaz. She's super, super fun. She's a rapper uh, from Brooklyn. Oh, really? She actually did the Q&A when we had the uh, release party. She did the Q&A with us. Uh, She is, yeah, she's great. She's super hilarious. I would also actually say that one of the performers, her name is Missy Martinez. Her Twitter is hilarious, is like sh- hilarious, like absolutely hilarious. And she, I think, has the line of the movie where after she gets come on, uh, she like wipes some of it off with her hand and goes, oh, what a historical load, <laughs> which is hilarious, which is like hilarious, better than anything anybody's ever written, like ever. Uh, yeah. So, you know, give her the Oscar. <laughs> Fuck Roma. Honestly, Roma did not deserve it. Missy Martinez deserves deserves it. For best foreign language? Because mm-hmm. that's what Roma won. Yep. <laughs> I stand by my statement. <laughs> One quick correction. I checked, and Hamilton is actually only about one-third music and two-thirds sex. That said, it still has not made me come. There were a lot of bumps in the road along the way to making Hamilton. But as soon as the production was announced, the media took immediate notice. It got covered everywhere. Like, Weekend Update did a joke about it. Uh, like, the Pulitzer Prize people were tweeting about it. Like, New York Mag. Like, you know, like everybody. Lin-Manuel Miranda knows about it. Like, we know that he knows about it. We got and to- you, you really want to meet him? I would love to meet I I will put this out there. I'm going to have the trophy in a couple of weeks. If Lin-Manuel Miranda wants to take a picture with the best clever title trophy for the porn version of a thing that changed his life, <laughs> he is more than welcome to come. I'll I'll bring it wherever he wants to bring Should it. Should we say your address just so people... Yeah, everyone... Not, let's not say my address, but here's my social security and just find me through that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure Lin knows some people who can yeah. find you. Oh, my God. Lin-Manuel Miranda is at the point now in his life where he's two phone calls away from anybody. And I mean anybody. Two seems one too many. Yeah. He just can call you. Yeah. Yeah. He just says, Siri, call. <laughs> Siri, call. Call Hamilton. <laughs> Calling Hamilton. I've been calling myself Skin Manual Miranda. 
Hamilton was nominated for four AVN awards and ended up winning for both Best Soundtrack and, of course, Clever Title. And if you've heard the episode of this show I recorded at the 2016 AVN Awards and Expo, you may remember that at least as far as my inner 12-year-old is concerned, the main highlight of the AVN Awards every year is simply hearing the many ridiculous and hilarious titles. I will never forget the name of the clever title winner from 2016, which was That Rapper Destroyed My Crapper. This year, Hamilton competed against 15 titles, including Cross-Eyed Cock-Loving Cheerleaders, Sextraterrestrials from Planet Ass, International House of Cream Pies, and Hungry Hungry Pregos. Do you have ideas for more porn parodies? You know, I thought of one recently that I, that I thought was, uh, was genius. Uh, You've Got Tail. <laughs> Was the was the one? I don't. I'm not even like a pun guy to be honest. And who knows? Meg Ryan might do it. Yeah, she's uh, she's what's she doing nowadays? Nothing. Exactly. She's exactly. getting a producer credit on "You've Got Tail" with Tom Spanks. I think I think we have a deal. There I'm greenlighting this right now. Aton is in the process of completing a documentary about his ridiculous adventure with Hamilton which I'm very much looking forward to seeing and will let you know as soon as I have the details about when and how you can watch it as well. I mentioned earlier that Joel Kim Booster has appeared on Conan, and so has the next person we're going to hear from, which is a little surprising considering she's a Berlin-based professional dominatrix. I'm sure you remember Lady Velvet Steel from the last episode of this show. And one of the reasons I was excited to talk to her is the hilarious segment she filmed with Conan. And I was surprised to hear that it almost didn't happen. They called my colleague, who does not speak English, like my business partner, and I was sitting next to her at the desk and she was answering the phone. And she was like, oh, I'm not sure. American comedians are not quite our targeted audience. I, I'm, I, I have never heard of this guy. And I was like, ask them who it is. And she's like, who is it? some guy named Conan, and I'm like, whoa, give me this fucking phone, we do whatever you guys want. <laughs> and she had no clue who he was, and I, of course, knew Conan, and I was like, so, okay, now I'm excited, but what is it exactly what you guys want to do? And then she told me, and um, I was like, okay, I'll call you back later, so that I had to think about it, and I put down a few um, outlines, like I don't want any fun about sex work. I don't want any stupid jokes about SM. So that's definitely not what we are here for. And it costs you the rent of the studio for the day because nobody else can work, obviously. And um, we can do it. So, and that's how that happened, accidentally. <laughs> More than 2 million people have watched it on YouTube alone. Yeah. And I'm sure all over the world it's been on TV. Has, has that had an impact on, on your business or was it more just sort of a fun thing? Because I imagine some of the people watching it are people who would love these services but don't know where to go and that kind of thing. And they see you and I feel like you really, you really did a great job in Thank that you. clip. <laughs> like I, I imagine a lot of people watching that would be like, I want to see her. Did it I work still, out that way? I still actually get a lot of... Uh 
mentions. So people are actually like sending me like an email. Oh, I saw you on Conan and that was fantastic. And I say I got a few clients, not like masses, but it's still out there, you know, and the internet never forgets. So people stumble upon it. I get also like a lot of feedback from colleagues who say like that was actually great. And um, I mean, imagine that almost all America, the whole thing is completely criminalized here. And then mainstream comedian is going to book a sex worker. And it's not portrayed in this like 50 shades cliche bullshit. So, which I think is huge. Also like hats off to Conan for taking that risk. It could have gotten either way. So I get a lot of um, positive things from, from colleagues, which I'm really happy about because I did want to represent well. And uh, the odd customers coming by, but mostly it was regulars who were like, oh, that was so great, fantastic. And, and it's also very useful because when, wherever I go, I am really open about my profession and I meet a lot of people and they have no fucking clue or they have like all weird ideas and then they don't really know. And then I pull the clip up and it's like, here, it's like that. And they're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and then they have something to watch and they don't have to answer all the stupid questions all the time. <laughs> That's great that you just yeah. have this, watch this video, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. <laughs> you should definitely watch the video, which you can find a link to in the show notes and at sexwithstrangersshow.com. During that Berlin trip, I also spoke with award-winning playwright and founder of Smut Slam, Cameron Moore, who in addition to touring the world with her six one-woman shows, among other works, created Smut Slam, which has become a global institution. As of when we spoke, there were 15 local Smut Slams regularly taking place in cities around the world, and two more on the way. She's originally from the US, but relocated to Berlin basically through happenstance, and Cameron could tell Germany was going to be a good fit, in part because of how immigration officials reacted to her colorful resume. They didn't even blink at my stack of papers when I went in and asked, uh, you know, went in for like a two-year work visa. And all of my my work, my my CV and all of my printouts and all of my reviews are from shows called Phone Whore and Slut Revolution and Smut Slam. And I don't even know if that registered with them, but they looked at it and they're like, okay. Whereas in the UK, oh. They give me such looks. But even in the U.S., coming into the U.S. when I would do that, they're like, what kind of shows do you do? Yeah, what's that called? Phone whore. What's that about? It's about working as a phone sex operator, which she did for about eight years. Cameron is not a stand-up comic, but she has flirted with the medium. I self-teach. So I go and like immerse myself in whatever the, the skill is. So I, I spent a year going intensely to stand-up comedy open mics in Boston. And then after a year of that, well, I kept going, but then I started going, oh, I need to develop some storytelling skills. And so I started going to storytelling open mics in Boston. And I would always ask the, uh, the hosts, uh, is it okay if I bring some blue material? Can I bring some stories about sex? And they're all like, sure, whatever, whatever, we're all good. But then when I was telling the stories at those shows, the audience members would just sit there in the front row with their arms crossed, just looking at me like, lady, we are disappointed. And he like, just really, the judgment was rolling off of them in waves. And I got tired of being 
of of being the only one telling sex stories. And it wasn't sex stories for the sake of titillating, but sex stories that were actually bringing something interesting about my life or the human condition to the table, right? And so I just, as with so many of my projects, um, I wanted a place, I wanted something that didn't exist. So I just made it for myself and then it turned out other people wanted it too. Uh, so Smart Slam started that way in Boston. Uh, and then um, while I was touring around North America, I would take it just about everywhere that I could get away with it. When I was doing my own shows, my one woman shows, uh, I would try to bring in Smut Slam as well. So I did it at least in like, I would say upwards, 20, 25 cities around North America, between Canada and the US, different places. So it started with me because I just wanted a place to be potty mouth, <laughs> my own stories. And now it's just, it's become entirely something else um an, an open mic space for not 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 only performers not only celebrities of different sorts but like audience members can come up and tell their own stories and i have to tell you i wish you could see smut slam i wish you were here for smut slam people do not know until they are at smut slam what it is exactly because even i've told you a lot you've read the website but like there's something about normal ordinary people coming together overcoming their shyness overcoming their fear and saying really true things about their sex lives that is magical. And just trying to describe it to a, news, a newspaper editor, they don't get that. They don't get it. They have to witness it. They have to witness it. So then it's just a question of like luring people in and getting them to see that. But yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I often have told people that I don't do this show because I'm obsessed with sex. Mm -hmm. It's just, I do think that sex is a great way to just sort of explore the human condition and get into issues of identity mm -hmm. and gender and power mm -hmm. and cross-cultural things. It's mm -hmm. just, it's a lot of what we talk about this on the show is, has nothing to do with penetration yeah. or any, anything that you is X-rated in any way. Mm -mm. It's, it's about life. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same thing at, yeah. at Smut Slam. Yeah. Oh, man. People, there's something, it's like, I think I've heard someone call it the story effect, where you hear somebody else tell a story and you're like, oh, I can do that. I can totally do that. And so, like, these stories are never, it's not erotica. These are, like, real stories that, and they usually real sex is hella awkward. Or, like, emotional in a way that you didn't expect even like hookup sex can be really fucking emotional you know or or it it, it leads to like explosions in the family structure or it's not about like how juicy was that we're not trying to turn anyone on the audience we're just wanting like just regular stories and, and those those stories really do that they're not actually that sexy this is what i try to tell people in a, in a weird sort of like back advertising sort of way it's like no, actually, um, don't don't come here if you think, A, you're going to hook up with anyone and B, like, that you're going to want to hook up with anyone after this. Because after some of our stories, you might be put off of sex for a little while, <laughs> you know, because it's just it's so awkward and messy and dangerous. It's literally a clusterfuck. And, and that's something that people do want to hear. You know, that's people that that's something that people identify with mostly, you know. The, the messiness of the it messiness, all. the messiness It's gross. Sex is gross. <laughs> But awesome. <laughs> like humans. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It is not a smut slam until there's either blood or shit in one of the stories. There has to be. 
Or bloody shit. Or bloody shit. That is all. Or puke. Uh, that's, that's always. It's like it's. It's like a baby, basically. <laughs> mm. Cameron's first one woman show is the one we mentioned earlier about working as a phone sex operator. I've done that show over 200 times, maybe close to 250 times around the world. Uh, so of course it has more critical attention and because it's just been out there more. But uh, Phone Whore is a, yeah, it's a, a, a drama slash comedy, uh, one woman show, slice of life based on my work as a phone sex operator. So I did phone sex uh, professionally for almost eight years. And I wrote this play like three or four months into it. Three or four months into it. And oddly enough, it totally stood up to the test of time. Like, like it, I used, basically the play is, the, the conceit of the play is that I'm at home in my apartment, audience is hanging out with me, like we're friends. And in real life, I did have friends come over to hang out with me because phone sex, is, if you're doing it from home, is incredibly isolating. You can't really go out if you want to make money. So I would be at home for these long stretches. I would invite people over. We'd make food or whatever. And then we'd constantly get interrupted. Not constantly, but we would get interrupted by phone calls. And so Phone Whore, the play, kind of recreates that experience where I'm, you know, I'm taking a call and the audience is eavesdropping, and then I'm done with the call, and then we have a conversation about the content of the call while I'm making toast or drinking cold coffee or going to the bathroom with the door open because that's what you do with friends are over there, right? Just keep talking, meh, 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 right? And uh, so, so that is an hour slice of life as if you were hanging out with a phone sex operator on call. If you've listened to the professional phone sex episode of this show, you might remember that my process for making that show included sitting in on an overnight phone sex shift with someone who, like Cameron, worked for a no-taboo phone sex line, meaning anything goes. And a big part of the discussion with her and the other phone sex operators featured in that episode dealt with the emotional labor involved with engaging caller fantasies that made individual operators uncomfortable, including fantasies that related to murder and cannibalism, as well as some scenarios about young children. Some of the operators from that show wrestled with whether they were simply providing a safe, sane, and consensual outlet for callers to address these darker fantasies, or if they were possibly normalizing these thoughts and potentially nudging callers toward maybe acting out some of those fantasies in the real world. I brought this up with Cameron, and she had a totally different take on the issue. My, my thinking about this was very much shaped by a friend who I was telling him about some of the calls that dealt with like incest kind of things, incest fantasies or whatever. And I said, you know, I'm just, oh, it feels weird that they're talking about this with young. Eh. And, and he said, he said, um, yeah, age play can be really tricky. You're lucky you have people to play with who aren't going to judge you for it. And what I took from that is because at that time I was already exploring for myself age play. And I'm very much like in, in, in my private life, I'm very like bottomy, very submissive. And so like, that's like, that's there. So what I realized then is like, oh, so but this is just the same kind of talk that I do with my partner or partners. These are people who are not connected to that community. They're not connected to the kink community. They have a credit card. They have some desires that they're not sure what to do about. 
I'm not saying that I'm saving the world in any way. I never felt that like, oh, they're venting. Because I think most of them understand. The thing about what you're calling the dark fantasies, like we all know that those things are bad. We know that it's bad. We're socialized to do that. To like understand that rather. So the people who aren't socialized are going to do it anyway. And the thing about like phone sex is like I didn't have, they were anonymous to me. But the phone, the, the dispatcher always knew who they were because they had to have a credit card. So it's not anonymous. And I think that was what I ultimately came to understand and kind of sit with. It's like they are aware that there are people listening in. They're aware that we can track them down. And if that's really, if they want to, if the people who are really doing this are not going to be talking about it on phone sex because it's too risky because they could get busted. It's like, I know people in the kink world, whose greatest thrill, whose greatest kinky thrill in life is to take people out into a dungeon and kick their ribs. Just kick them. Just kidding. Like all of it. Like brutal, brutal, brutal. But they know that they don't go out and do it on the street to someone who hasn't consented, right? So I came to understand these darker calls. It's like, well, these are people who don't have access to this understanding. Rather, they understand that it's wrong, but they don't have access to a place where they can work it out. And I think ultimately the the worst that happens for most of these people that I talk to, if they weren't to have phone sex as an outlet, is they would have vanilla sex with their partner and roll over at the end of it and a little gray spot on their soul would get a little bigger. That's it. Like, is this it? Is it is all there is to it? They, they would maybe feel that. But I don't think, I don't think that they would go out and do it. So I never felt like I was holding the front line against like this this army of fucking pillagers and pirates going out for every kindergartner. You know, it's like that's not that's not what it was because I understand that these are things and we are all socialized to to know that. Um, people used to I do a Q and A after phone whore. Someone says how do, someone a frequent comment is comment is how do you know that they aren't going out and doing it? I'm like, I don't know that about anyone in this room. It's endemic. Uh, and I don't think that what I'm doing or not doing is actually any kind of uh, buffer in that. It's, 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 is what it is. And like, you know, I have strong feelings about that too. Yeah. I mean, it's very much, um, I mean, I, I did used to feel quite drained about some of the calls. Like, um, oddly enough, those were like less of a worry for me after I got kind of my head right around that. I also, I had worries. I had, um, strangely, I, I hated the guys who, um, wanted, I frequently, because of the, because of the quality of my voice, I got most of the Dommy calls, Dommy, um, uh, you know, stern boss, um, trans women calls. And they wanted to talk about like, to having sex with a trans woman. Probably not using that word. No. And, and they wanted to, talk about how beautiful I was and how all this stuff. I'm like, I bet that you are actually a real dickhead about actual trans issues out in the world. Like, I bet if you see the quote, gender non-conforming or like quote, non-passing, these are all terribly problematic words, right? But like, you know what I'm saying? Like someone who's not super pretty, I bet you have issues out in the real world. And so like those kinds of things would often just make me grit my teeth because there's no educating there. There's no educating. You have to act like that is the hottest thing in the world. Ugh. Right. It seems like you've kind of designed the smut slam to be the <laughs> opposite of that, where it's just like, 
we're going to talk about sex. Real stuff. Right. And I've made all these rules. It's not so, so many rules, but, but, it's but like, like I've like I've I know the kind of way that I want us to be talking about sex. Right. And it's sort of the opposite of the way yeah. you often talked about it as a phone sex. Phone operator. sex operator had no control over that at all. Like I had to take my cues from them. I'm really good at it, but I had to take my cues from them. And and it's not nice. Like some people just aren't nice, even if they're not like the darker stuff. It's still like. That would be a terrible way to approach a real life situation. But the great thing about fantasy is that it's not a real life situation. So, right. you know, the the problem then becomes like re- repetition over those fantasies. That's where it starts to be like, what do you do in real life? Seriously, what do you do, sir, in real life? Because what you do in the phone with me is horrible. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully he's... Yeah. Just playing a character in that context. For kind sure. of like how you are. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, I have to, like, most of my clients were very either implicitly or very explicitly aware of the conventions that were dictating our encounter here. Uh, some of them were quite delightfully aware of it. They were like, so what story are we going to make up today? Where they were fully on that level of meta and we're just going to play. Going back to the statement, age play can be really tricky. I sometimes think back on the very first episode of this show, Sex in Tokyo, where topics related to age play came up a fair amount. And looking back, I don't think I was equipped to discuss that topic with the nuance it deserved. We focused on age play in episode 15. And I think that that was really the first time I sat down and seriously thought about age play and contextualized it for myself. And had I done that, prior to going to Japan, I suspect I would have had a more thoughtful take on age play in the Tokyo episode. It's a good reminder that I, like most people, have blind spots, and I think part of growing as a human is trying to identify and address said blind spots. That's one of the great things about making this show. It it helps me find my blind spots, and hopefully it helps you find some of yours. Another issue Cameron raised in that last clip is the fetishization of trans women, which I think is a complicated issue. We spent a lot of time talking about the fetishization of people with disabilities in episodes 31 and 33, and I tried to get into the nuances and ethical questions that come with fetishizing human beings, particularly marginalized people. As a gay Asian American, Joel has also given this topic quite a bit of thought. You know, the gay community is so small, and then there are so many subgroups within it. And I think if there is a subgroup that is aware of me, like uh, unequivocally within the gay community, it is uh, rice queens or guys who are into Asian men. Yeah, I mean, I, I always get some amount of attention from from that sect of the gay community, and I welcome and I honor it to a point, always. Where, where does that point end? Um, I mean, people can be wild in your DMs, uh, and I think that people also um, can be a little, you know, we've talked uh, about the fact that I, I do, I am very open on stage about uh, my sex life and sex in general, and I think that that sort of invites a sort of sense of like, oh, I can, this is who I, this is who this guy is. And like, he's going to respond if I go there immediately with him. And, and I don't, uh, 
you know, yes, I, I love to have sex and fuck and whatever. And like, I like to talk about it, but it is not something where like, I want to look into my DMs and see some random asshole, like, like literal asshole. Um, <laughs> just like Thanks for the popping up. Yeah. In, in my DMs. Um, and I think like, it, it's sort of that I think uh, gets a little crazy. And I think too, there is this weird, you know, I'm still on the apps and there's this um, sort of strange phenomenon of people who will say like, Oh, I'm a big fan um, uh, of your work. And like, I do feel obligated to say like, Oh, thank you. Like if they say that. Um, and then there is like a weird sort of like they continue the conversation. And if I'm not into it, I don't really know what to do in that case. And so oftentimes I just won't respond or something like that. Or I'll sort of like do a slow fade and they get the, the, they get very upset and it's always white men who, who, who sort of get that entitlement, uh, mentality and sort of like, Oh, you're not, you know, you're, you're, you think you're, you know, famous, you're nothing like blah, blah, blah. And it's always so interesting. And so how quickly it shifts, um, to that sort of space. Um, you're so yeah, nothing. yeah. I can't imagine I, saying that to someone. You're well, nothing. That is, I think, that is, I think, my problem with um, rice queens in general is that there's and and there's this, this is a generalization, and there are a lot of guys that I've met and I'm friends with who um, you know just happen to be attracted to features that are commonly found in Asian American men, like they like smooth and dark features, whatever, what have you. Um, but there is like, because, uh, Asian men are sort of at the bottom of the totem pole in this like bullshit hierarchy that we have created for ourselves in the gay community because of sort of broad stereotypes about Asian men, um, in the world, you know, not even outside of the gay community, you know, Asian men are seen as less masculine and, and the gay community has sort of put a premium on premium on masculinity right now and you know dick size the ideas about dick size and aggression and on all these things i think because uh there is an awareness of that sometimes i find that rice queens so a certain kind of rice queen will leverage that idea and sort of come to you like um you should be glad that you're getting this sort of attention from me a white person and like you can always tell when that's that because I, I it, it happens when the turn happens you know like I've heard that said to me and that is what makes me uncomfortable uh with like sort of uh, initially with anybody who sort of self-identifies immediately as somebody who is like only into Asian guys and I'm like why um and sometimes it's physical and that's great and I I value that but sometimes it's not and when it gets to like those weirder places I don't uh, I don't want to be involved in that. And I've spoken to like, I think, I think it's the same thing that like Asian women, uh, heterosexual Asian women sort of face, um, in their communities. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it, it is a, it's a power dynamic that I often have to like be careful to tread. And, um, yeah. When, when deciding sort of where that line, cause I imagine there's a line between, and I, I don't even know if I should use that phrase, um, I know I was listening to your Bullseye um, interview, and I noticed uh, Jesse was like, I'm going to let you say this term, yeah. <laughs> um, which I thought was wild. No, you can say it. Yeah. It's- um, it just it makes me think of the um, the rice, like the dairy-free ice cream rice dream. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. what it makes me think of. But I imagine there's there's sort of this delicate line between, you know, someone who just, for whatever reason, 
attracted mostly or only to people of Asian descent versus someone who for them, it's like a fetish. Yeah. I I mean, there definitely isn't, there are plenty of people who don't give a shit. There are plenty of Asian guys who, uh, that I know who don't give a shit. They're just happy uh, to have found somebody that they're attracted to as well. And like, maybe I should think about it less. I, I think for me, like, it has really fucked me up because I, I often am sort of like, I would love to be somebody's first Asian boyfriend. You know, like I, it, it, it is a weird thing when I, I've started doing this when I, I find mixed race couples in the audience. I'm always like, uh, I always ask like, is, is, are they your first or, or the, the first, you know, or just a, in a long line? Cause it is, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's intrinsic, intrinsically wrong, but I think sort of like the ethos of a lot of my bits that I've been developing over the last year or so is really like, let's just think about it. Let's just, let's, let's interrogate our desires a little bit and like, see, like follow those questions down the rabbit hole and see where they lead. Cause uh, oftentimes it's, uh, and granted I'm, I'm writing jokes. I'm not just like uh, having these like uh, sociological discussions with my audiences. I promise I am writing them as I'm, I'm forming them in the form of a joke. Um, But like, it is interesting to see a, how like, uncomfortable the white person gets in that when that question is posed and to see how the Asian person or the black person or the Latino person or the person, any person of color in that situation responds when uh, they're like, no, I mostly date that. And like, like I said, a lot of people don't give a shit and that's, and I, I think that's fine. And I wonder, I always wonder like if it's a problem with me that I just like think too much. And I think part of it is a, is a byproduct of my background, like having white parents and having sort of dysphoria about my body, my race, my, you know, uh, every part of me. It's, 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 so I think like that's both uh, sort of been a prison for my brain and also made me a little bit more of a better comedian because I'm, I'm constantly turning over these things in my brain and then I just happen to try and make them funny. The podcast Reply All tackled this issue a few years ago through the perspective of Asian American women in an episode entitled The Fever, which we will link to in the show notes. I found it incredibly eye-opening and definitely recommend checking it out. And while I'm recommending podcasts, I should also mention the latest episode of the show Criminal entitled Cecilia focuses on the story of a trans woman who is also a former sex worker, and I just think it's really well done, so we will link to that as well. Returning to the idea of people going wild in your DMs, as Joel put it, as a woman who often talks about sex on stage, our next guest, comedian Rena Calm, is no stranger to what we'll call explicit feedback from audience members both in person and online. There's sometimes that guys say stuff to me that's so disgusting after the shows that I just like feel horrible for the woman they're going home with to not please, you know, <laughs> like that's what it feels like to me. Um, I've even said before, if a guy says something so stupid, I shout at the woman he's with. I'm like, do not have sex with him tonight. <laughs> like <laughs> the point is to have good sex. So probably skip that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> like guys offering to eat your butt after shows. Yeah, that's that's a real thing. How how many times has that happened? <laughs> I have material about it. Like, have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's why, yeah. That's why I'm bringing it up. 
<laughs> I didn't yeah. just guess that. Okay, I was like, oh yeah, that's real. <laughs> that's super real. I had one, okay, this one blows my mind. So like I did a show in Michigan where a guy messaged me like late at night after the show and was like really creepy and said something about fingering. And I remembered, I'm like, oh, I mentioned something about fingering. I think I did like a new joke about fingering, like the first within the first five minutes I was on stage. I was on stage for like an hour. And the things I said beyond fing like I said so much worse stuff than fingering, but it's like this fucking guy must have just heard me say fingering and been like, that's it for me. And just I don't know what he thought I was that's doing. That's all he thought about for the rest of the time I was he, on stage. And then beyond if yes. he's messaging you in the middle of the night. Yes. And I remember like when he messaged my uh so if you message somebody's professional page, there's like a response rate to keep up with. So I was like, ah, oh, that's perv. But I had to <laughs> like, I recognized his face. It's and like I, Airbnb, like response within one hour. Generally. Right. Yeah. I want those bookings. So you're like, okay, quick response. You got to keep on it. Did you finger him? No, I was like, well, the quickest way to get through this, <laughs> I recognized him and I remembered him staring at my merch table. He didn't buy anything. And so I just wrote back to him because he said something disgusting. And I just responded by saying, hey, how about the next time you think about saying something disgusting to a woman on the Internet? You do something nice for a woman in your real life. And he wrote back something worse. Long story short, I ended up saying something the effect of. You should have at least bought a book so you'd have something to come on. And he wrote back and I tried to like delete him and block him like immediately after saying that. Like I was like, you should have something to come on. And then I couldn't figure out the app. And so before I could block him, he wrote back, why would I come on a book? <laughs> it's like, all right, you got me there. <laughs> but it's her exchanges with women after shows that encourage her to continue talking about sex on stage. Boldly and unapologetically. I'll do it for the rest of my life just for like one lady coming up and being like, wow, the lady in Florida said, listening to your material made me realize like I need to be more honest with who I am. I'm like, awesome. Uh, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> but that's huge, you know. But I like talking about sex because... I go places where, yeah, like I got a message from a lady saying, you know, my ex made me feel really weird about sex and listening to you talk about it made me feel like a lot more better, empowered to even be sexual. You'll, I've had women tell me that they would have laughed louder, but their boyfriends told them they were being embarrassing. So like quieted them down. It's like, I don't know. Some of my jokes are probably too true about women being one thing and I don't know I don't hate men I love them very much but what else am I supposed to make jokes about you know right dicks are hilarious uh <laughs> I mean it has to be funny for everyone obviously but like there's definitely times in my set that I can hear the sound of only the woman in the room laughing and I don't know exactly what I'm doing right or wrong in those moments sometimes but it's like that's kind of a beautiful thing because you can't fake that, you know, that reaction. I also made a guy, uh, <laughs> I made a guy, like I said, oh, I made him squirt because he like coughed up uh, his drink in the front row while I was talking in Fargo, North Dakota a couple weeks ago. And that felt great. <laughs> and so when you talk about things like masturbation on stage in places like Fargo, North Dakota, does it generally go over well? Like, are 
are there places where you feel like that's a more comfortable topic than others? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everywhere is different in these weird little ways. I'll say like the Dakotas, my experience is that like, there's like Minnesota nice, you know, or Midwestern nice. The Dakotas are this whole other thing of like, they won't even like look you in the face while you're telling your jokes. Like they just kind of politely look down and I can see them laughing, but like they won't even, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like making a guy cough up his drink. I know that I made him laugh harder than he even wants to, you know, but like, yeah, I think depending on the crowd and the town and the show, if the show's not ideal for like sound or whatever, you know, there's so many factors. I feel like, I would used to shy away. Like, I feel like tonight might be a little bit of an older crowd. And I used to shy away from doing any sexual material in front of an older crowd. It's different. My approach, like depending on the crowd, I definitely try to, you know, ease into it. Uh, Just like with sex, it goes better if you (laughs) ease into it. Yeah. And see what they're into. But old people are horny as ever, you know, and they've heard everything. So it's about getting them on your side. I think if you have them on your side, my favorite is making people laugh harder than they wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I feel like old audiences, they get underestimated sometimes by comics in terms of like what what they're willing to hear. I would say that like where it can go poorly is with like politics. For sure. And again, like I feel like that's been one of the greatest challenges in the like Trump era is just that. I feel like more than before being a woman is political. You know, I never really considered myself a political person, but you know, in the era of grabbing by the pussy, like it does feel political just to even be a woman talking some of the places that I go. So I absolutely, I'm trying to talk about tonight. I was specifically asked to not talk about abortions was like the main thing, which um, nobody wants to talk about that topic. You know what I mean? I guess, but except people that hate it, they love it. They make billboards, but, um, it really like, it bothers me that you can hear ads for boner pills. <laughs> like male virility is so important, but like female health is so not important in our society. So I'll talk about sex to get them on my side enough to hope to get them comfortable enough that I can talk about the hypocrisy in some of our reproductive health laws. Cause that's like, so, so you're going to go there tonight. You think I'm no, not okay. tonight. Tonight they're paying me money I need <laughs> and they specifically said nothing about abortion. So I will curb that. I might talk about, um, uh, family planning by doing jokes about like condoms or I might, maybe I'll talk about, I have a plan B joke, you know, but no, I won't. Speaking of audiences laughing harder than they want to and spitting things out, that night I attended Rena's show in Effingham, Illinois, and she made an audience member laugh so hard that his dentures flew out of his mouth onto the floor. It was pretty amazing. Rena is currently on the road with the goal of performing stand-up in all 50 U.S. states. So if you're here in America, there's a decent chance you'll be able to see her somewhere near you, and I highly recommend doing so. I joined the Dollar Shave Club last year. Anybody heard of this? Yeah, it is amazing. It's not where somebody comes and shaves you for a dollar. That'd be nice. Uh, 
They send you razors in the mail. I like it because it's cost effective and I am a Jew. But the reason I joined, <laughs> the reason I signed up is actually because it's a service for men. Yeah. So I figured like, well, hey, anything that's made to be put on a man's face is the perfect thing to put you know where. <laughs> Because I'm going to put that on a man's face, okay? <laughs> it matches. <laughs> they send you samples of stuff in the mail. They sent me a sample of this peppermint shave butter. That is for your face. Um, <laughs> That for sure goes on a face. <laughs> it feels like I popped an Altoid in there. That is curiously strong. Okay. Now I gotta get out of here. I just wanna let you guys know, I think I have kind of a weird dating philosophy, especially for a woman, because we're conditioned to never be too easy. Don't sleep with somebody too quick. They'll think you're easy, right? I am easy. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I'm gonna test drive this, okay? I'm gonna get in there. I feel like, let's see how this goes and then I'll invest some time in your personality. Woof. <laughs> if it goes real good, I'll learn your name, but that's the deal. But I still, I don't wanna seem easy, you know? I won't be like, hey, let's go do it. That's too easy. I will be like, hey, uh, let's make out. <laughs> that means do it. Uh, <laughs> that's just a nicer sounding way of saying do it. Because if we're going to make out, we're doing it. <laughs> if I'm going to put my mouth on a guy's mouth, I'll probably put my mouth anywhere. <laughs> because a guy's mouth. <laughs> okay. A guy's mouth? That's where their thoughts come out of. That's disgusting. Oh, uh, you guys have been so much fun. I'm Rena Calm. Have a great night. I've known both Rena and our final comedian, Sorene Choksi, for many years and have really enjoyed watching them develop as comedians. A few years ago, Sorene won the Boston Comedy Festival and then on the heels of that, was hired as the host of Fuse TV's playfully named White Guy Talk Show, along with co-host Grace Para. Only one season, unfortunately. Um, but we did 40 episodes. Uh, we interviewed, like, uh, Rob Corddry and, like, Steve Aoki. And, like, yeah, it was just, like, a cool experience, dude. I'm very fortunate to have that. Um, I feel like those two rarely come up in the same sentence. Well, we, we interviewed them in the same day at a nail salon, which was super fun. Um, yeah. Now, Cordry and Aoki, uh, they hang, baby. They, they roll together. Um, so it was a super awesome experience as far as, like, working on it and learning. As far as, like, people seeing it, I don't think that many people saw it. Uh, the whole vibe the network had was that this first season is a kind of like pilot season. That's what they kept telling us. And then we're going to do a season two uh, after a summer break. And that's when we're going to really push like promotion and all that. And then in between, <laughs> so, you know, Fluffy, uh, Gabriel Iglesias, he got a show uh, 
or had a show on the same channel. And the the premise of the show was that he would eat and then he would have to work off the calories that he had consumed. Okay. Uh, I think it was called Fluffy Eats It All. And they just didn't have the budget for this show and our show. It's kind of kind of the, you know, I might be simplifying. And so, like, I was always like, Fluffy ate my show, you know? Since then, he has focused on performing at clubs and colleges around the country. He also produces two Brooklyn-based stand-up showcases, Comedians You Should Know New York and Brown Privilege Comedy. A huge part of Soreen's evolution as a performer has related to how he talks about sex on stage. And you can always get through any show, I think. Uh, well, at least any kind of club show. If you just riff crowd work about sex. Like, you know, uh, crowd, sex crowd work will always, I think, and, get you through. And give us an example of sort of like sex crowd work. Let me think. Oh, this dude, you look... Oh, man, you're so American. Uh you look at the type of dude, even when you're fucking, you're reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. A stupid shit like this. You know what I mean? So I used to have a lot of just like things like this that I would sort of throw out there in, in, in a set to just juice it up sometimes or whatever. And I don't like to do that stuff anymore because I think it's dumb. And Going back to what you were saying, it's, it, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, it's dumb. Is it, is it true? Do I really? I mean, yes, this guy has an all-American look. I mean, it's fine when it comes out in the moment, but there is something right. deeply gross when you, you pull it out again over and over again. Yeah, yeah. You know? Because it, it's like, supposed like it was to in be the, spontaneous. It's supposed to be spontaneous in the moment, and it's not. But I, I then just leaned on that to get through the end of this because I was right. like, man, I don't know what and, to do. And you build up some tension by, like, singling out someone in the audience and everyone kind of, like, yeah, really pays attention. Yeah, but it's the worst kind of tension. It, yeah. Um, with a joke and everyone's going to laugh because yeah. that's what laughter is. It's but there's no, like, hey, tension about, like, some thought we've not had right, or right, exactly. exposing it's, something it's just like hey man look at this guy don't he look like he fucked like that it's like oh this sucks dude this is you know this is bad comedy one thing i appreciate about his approach to comedy is that soreen updates his jokes to reflect his evolving worldview. if he doesn't think what he's saying rings true he stops saying it until he figures out how to make it true this was the case with a bit he did for a long time that was based on a belief he once held that women's fantasies are much more complicated than men's fantasies. It's fundamentally not true. But as a younger person, I had certain points of view that were not true. Um, and I, I truly thought like, ah, oh, men's fantasies are simpler than women's fantasies. And now uh, getting older and then, yeah, my, my wife is like... Uh, an accelerant on all these things where it's like, oh, dude, this is so dumb. Many women have very simple fantasies. Many men have very crazy, you know, uh, whatever, deep, frightening, dark, whatever, elaborate fantasies. And so that bit has changed now because I didn't like doing it then for a while because it was just so dumb. And then... I was able to sort of figure out a way but to... But it does sound funny. Like, it, it sounds it's like... funny, a club. true, but funny. Absolutely. And, like, it's the type of thing that will... And that bit in particular would do well everywhere, but especially in a club, if you set it up in the simple way, uh, you get you get the laughs right off the bat, and it ends with a big act out. Everybody's super stoked uh, because <laughs> I'm being so funny. And, you know, I'm acting out and looking very silly on stage. But then 
I figured out a way to do it that I was happy with and that I do if I, it's actually, I close with it often if I'm doing a long set. It's a hilarious bit. And I think a great way to end this episode. But before you hear it, I just want to take a second to thank all of the people featured in this episode for chatting with me and remind you, the listener, to look through the links in the show notes for all kinds of cool projects, podcasts, hilarious clips, comedy albums, tour dates, all kinds of fun shit and whatnot from the folks we just heard from. They've got a lot of projects and you should check out at least some of them. Special thanks as always to Sean Payne and Luis DeMeo for all that you do, as well as Ben Jordan, the flashbulb for our theme music. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so the other day my wife and I were talking about just sex and life and things. Oh, there we go. And I was telling her about my philosophy on sexual fantasies, you know, and I was like, uh, look, let me tell you what's up. And my wife's way smarter than me. And I was like, when it comes to sexual fantasies, men and women were very different, right? Men and women were very different. Men were very simple. If you ask any man what his sexual fantasy is, dudes will always say the same thing, right? They'll always say, two chicks, bro. Right? That's dudes for you. You can be like, well, where are you? What's the backstory? What's the environment? And dudes are like, I don't know, man. We fucking in a white room, dog. I really <laughs> It's like where they build iPhones, dude. I really don't know. <laughs> You're like, well, this is your fantasy. You can have anything you want. Your imagination is your playground. You can have anything in the whole wide world. And she's like, oh. <laughs> oh. Three chicks, right? <laughs> it's like six boobs, man. <laughs> and she's just listening. She's like, okay. And I go, women on the other hand. Oh, baby. Women. Your fantasies, they're deep. They're emotional. I find them quite frightening to be <laughs> And she says, well, do you want to know my sexual fantasy? And I was like, yeah, for sure. She was like... <laughs> it was Salem, Massachusetts, 16 years. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> the townspeople have accused me of being a witch. <laughs> And an adulteress. <laughs> Both accusations are true. <laughs> the town people have tied me to a cross in the middle of the town <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> an unruly mob has gathered around me. The local blacksmith shouts, Hawk, light a fire! Plans begin to grow around me. But through the smoke, I see a lone woodsman begin to approach. He only has one arm. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter. Shut up. It doesn't matter. You lost it in a window accident. You're really shut up. And the mob is growing more and more unruly. The flames are growing higher and higher. The woodsman is approaching closer and closer. I begin to feel a heat. Not from the fire. But from within my own loins. Shut up. 
Now the woodsman is so close, he is so close, that I can feel his hot breath on my heaving bosoms. And he begins to stroke me with his one stubby elbow. open my eyes and there you are going <laughs> she was like you're so dumb dude she was like do you really think that's how men and women work you think all men fantasize one way and all women fantasize another way you think all men think one way and all women think another way she was like you want to know my real fantasy I was like, oh, okay. she just goes three dudes motherfuckers <laughs> The one thing that I got into, I can't believe I forgot to mention, speaking of lesbian sex, Disobedience is the hottest fucking movie ever with Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams, Hasidic Jewish women that do it. It's the best. It's the hottest thing. Because usually, like, lesbian porn and lesbian movies are not that great. That was, like, breathtaking. Amazing. Anyway, highly recommend it. What about that movie really worked for you? I think uh, I I believed their chemistry. I really believed it. And it's so funny because there were so many memes afterwards uh, of Rachel McAdams uh, just being, like, the best kiss I ever had was Rachel Weisz. The best sex scene I ever did was Rachel Weisz. We're like, you're a lesbian. Just, like, somebody tell her <laughs> that she's in love with Rachel Weisz like the rest of the world is. I mean, she's so attractive. Um, their chemistry was so believable. I think because I have such a fascination, as you do, with, like, religion and and sexuality, uh, it was, like, my two favorite topics in a movie. It was, like, a, a huge forbidden thing. And when they finally had sex, it was like, my God. And they did it so well. The scene was so well done. I felt like they, re- I really believed that they wanted each other so badly. Unless it was like just me wanting them so badly, you know. But it was really intense. There's a controversial scene there that a lot of people don't like that I really liked. Uh, you haven't seen the movie yet. No, no. Anyway, there's a spitting scene where Rachel Weisz spits in Rachel McAdams' mouth. Okay. And... Most people who I've polled, because my wife and I, oh yeah, that's another thing I should promote actually. My wife and I have a cartoon account uh, on Instagram. Just basically every week we come out with a comic strip based on our, our life and our interactions and stuff like that, which has been doing great at the L. Solomons. But my wife was like, she saw in the movie that I was like, that's the hottest thing I've ever seen. And she was just like, that was terrible. What are you talking about? So whenever my wife and I perform together, which we've been doing a lot more of lately. uh, So she's also a comic. Yeah, she's a comedian. Jess Solomon. A very funny comedian. So we pulled the audience and like, I think... I'm the only person, I think me and Jess Tom, who's another hilarious comedian, are the only two people that I know that appreciated that spitting scene. Everybody else was like, that was disgusting. But I think they just wanted each other so badly that they're like, just give me everything, you know, just give me everything that you have, your spit, your body, your, you know. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I feel like in porn, there's a lot of like spitting into places. I'm into I'm into the grading stuff. What do you want me to tell you? <laughs> that's that's my thing. And you're also into Jewish women, so it makes sense that that big movie. time. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the favorite? I have another Rachel Weiss doing lesbian she, things. I know, probably less hot for you. It was uh, a little less hot, but I mean, Rachel Weiss was as hot in that movie. She was like yeah. so stunning. Even when she got that scar and got beat up, she like amazing. The movie was awesome. I Olivia Coleman winning was brilliant. Her speech was brilliant. Her acting was brilliant. Um, but yeah, Rachel. I mean, I I cannot believe. That Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams stayed straight after disobedience. You have to watch it to see what I'm talking about. Okay. And apparently they both separately got pregnant while filming that movie. So I feel like all the parties involved were so turned on by this whole thing. Yeah. It was that sexual and great. Okay. I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to watch it. I saw the favorite to. in theaters with my mom. Oh. So I I didn't know that those scenes were coming up. So yeah. that that was a fun surprise. And not only that, but we were in a situation where we came kind of like we got our tickets late. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those theaters where like they assign the seat, like you have to like pick where you're si- sitting. Yeah. And we had to sit in the front row. Oh my God. And it was just you two? Yeah. Oh God. It was it was a <laughs> It was a strange time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) We saw that movie on Christmas Day. That's great. Just real up close, (laughs) royal lesbian sex. Great. (laughs) Not enough spitting, though. That was my main critique of the film. Well, listen, I think it's better to watch The Favorite with your mother than Disobedience with your mother because that sex scene is like six minutes long. It's the freaking best. It would have been like a really long, awkward stretch there. Yeah, yeah. Six minutes is a, is a lot. Yeah. Especially in the front row, which right. is where we would have been. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. I think this everything is covered fun. now. <laughs>